welcome back. This is Beth and Bailey, and we are very maturely <laughs> starting episode 69. I don't have it in me, I'm sorry. <laughs> of the True Crime b and <laughs> I was going to play some Marvin Gaye when I edit it. <laughs> You're going to get us a copyright infringement. Yeah, for real. Okay, anything you want to add before we start the episode other than happy 69th, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> no. So this week... We found out, we thought this whole time, that our baby puss was a Maine Coon cat because she's very large-boned and has a lot of their features. However, we discovered that she is actually a Norwegian forest cat. Which I think is really, really cute. They are very cute, and it does look a lot more like puss than a typical Maine Coon does. Right, we thought she was a mix, included Maine Coon. Maine Coon and a house cat, or some kind of mixture. Yeah. Now we know. We have a little rarity in our house. And Go Norwegian! Go Norwegian! <laughs> so mom made the joke, now you have to do a story in Norway for Puss's culture. And I did that this week. Okay, well I love that you did that, but I'm a little scared of what you found. Here we go. Habibu Labaran, who was born in Ghana, quickly fell in love in his early adulthood with traveling all across Europe. Okay. During these trips, he somehow found himself in the early 80s in downtown Oslo at a reggae club. And it was one of the only clubs that was actually based specifically for people of African culture and that had traveled here and opened this club. Okay. And there he met an equally kind and loving soul, a Norwegian woman named Marit Hermansen. Okay. These two, they met at this club, but then they just kept seeing each other and decided he ended up moving to Norway just to stay with her because they had such similar backgrounds in human rights and wanting to better the world in that way. And even at this point, Habibu had been supporting the LGBT community, which was in the early 80s, pretty ahead of its time. Yeah, it was hard for LGBT to find allies that were not actually in the community. Mm-hmm. And he was very outspoken, so he drew people into him that had a similar mindset. Okay. The two ended up marrying, and Marie, his wife, became a primary school teacher in Oslo, and they actually ended up settling in a suburban area outside of Oslo called Homlia, which was one of the fastest growing suburbs But it was also because it was a brand new place and the rent was really cheap, it was also a lot of people from different cultures were moving in here and that's why they decided on that because they wanted their kids to grow up. In a melting pot. In a melting pot and realize that we're all the same, you know? Right. Homelia was where they were living in 1985 when their son, Benjamin Laberon Hermanson, was born. His friends called him Benny. Four years later, Habibu died... I don't know how, but he passed away seems to be a medical situation. Oh, that's sad. And so Marit was left to take care of her son alone. Poor little Benjamin didn't get to know his dad very well. Benjamin grew up. He was confident, funny, and an amazing athlete. And many of his friends referred to him as the pretty boy of the friend group because he was just (laughs) soaked in confidence. So they kind of said he was a clown, but always stood up for people in the same time. He also shared in his parents' beliefs and passion towards uniting people and standing up for what he knew was right, such as racism. I mean, he's a mixed guy living in a mostly white city, so... Right. And he had dreams to become a lawyer when he grew up working on cases like this. Okay. Civil rights type cases? Mm Mm-hmm. January 26, 2001, 15-year-old Benjamin asked if he could walk up the road, literally a block up the road, from his house late at night to meet up with his best friend. Just real quick, they were going to meet outside of a shop, 
And you remember in the early 2000s, they had those flip phones and the removable cases that you could put on it? I don't know about the removable cases. Well, it wasn't like a phone case, but it was the actual back where the battery went in. You could take that off, and they had customizable ones where if you wanted a sports team or flowers or something like that, you could replace that back cover. Mm -hmm. Well, he and his best friend decided they were going to trade theirs with each other, and so they were literally meeting for five seconds to exchange those and then go back home. Okay. He got permission from his mom, and she said, okay, just be back really fast because it's almost midnight at this point. And he said, yep, I'll be right home. Five minutes. Just before midnight, as the two boys were standing talking to each other briefly on the sidewalk, a car full of people who referred to themselves as the Boot Boys... Oh, Jesus Christ. I can see where this is going. A known local neo-Nazi group pulled up next to them. They immediately started after the two boys right away, managing to stab Benjamin once in the scuffle as they ran. (sighs) Benjamin then took a chance to jump a nearby fence with his injuries still, And when he landed on the other side of the fence, he slipped on a sheet of ice. And they were so close behind him that they jumped on top of him and held him down as the other one stabbed him until he died. Poor Benjamin. What an awful thing to go through. The car group quickly regathered into the vehicle and left the scene, and others nearby rushed over to help Benjamin. Only 40 minutes later, he was officially pronounced dead only a few hundred meters away from his home. And his mom is sitting at home thinking he'll be home any second. Mm-hmm. And Marie, she wasn't stupid. She knew this kind of violence and shit was in the area. Well, the thing that's upsetting is, you know those guys, the neo-Nazi assholes, mm-hmm. were only in this area looking for victims. Yeah, they were from a suburb maybe 30 minutes away. Yeah. And have come to this specifically because it was such a multicultural that's right. town. They came here to be hateful mm-hmm. and to hurt somebody. That's the only reason and they the were there. And the first black person or a person against their agenda that they saw was, no matter who they were, going to be their victim. The identity of his attackers wasn't hard to come by because everybody knew of this group. They knew at least they were associated with the boot boys. The police went to the group head leaders and everybody was super quick to snitch on each other when they were confronted with the police. They ended up arresting that night a man named Ole Nikolai Kviesler, Petter Gunderson, Espen Lauritsen, and a 17-year-old girl who apparently was just driving the vehicle named Veronica Andreasen. They were still on the lookout for the person who had actually given the fatal blows, had jumped on top of him and stabbed him repeatedly on the ground. That man was named Joe Erling Jar. Nobody knew where he had run off to. After these names came to light, anti-racism groups of the area were obviously furious because this was known. We knew these guys were dangerous. They had been warning the police that the boot boys were becoming increasingly more dangerous and more violent for over a year now and had turned in these specific names multiple times and had been completely ignored. Furthermore, when the Norwegian Association Against Anti-Semitism released information to the public that three of the men who were being charged with Benjamin's murder just one month ago were in jail for a violent assault and were let out on bail and charges were dropped from the police. Again, here we are, people who are out on bail for violent crimes. Yeah, so they weren't so even going to So nothing even came of it. No justice at all for that victim, even though they were violently assaulted. So oh, crap. This shit's got to stop. After that news came out, the anger spread to an international level. The Oslo Anti-Racist Center and Norwegian Red Cross hosted a torchlit protest on February 1st, only four days after Benjamin's death. They expected around 20,000 people to show up in Oslo that day. 
When the night came, over 40,000 people marched. Wow. Well, it sounds like it was really building. It had been building, and Mm -hmm. the people finally said, we have been trying to tell you this is a problem. Nobody has done anything. And damn it, somebody needs to make a change. This was so preventable. Yeah, there needs to be a change. On top of the 40,000 people that marched that evening, there were an additional 60,000 people. Oh my God from all over the world who signed an online petition to stop allowing these Nazi groups to continue offending. And getting away with it and and letting them back out again. Slaps on the wrist. That's right. So that same night as the protest, the Oslo police were still on the case trying to find the person who actually did the killing of Benjamin, and they did find him that exact night. They hunted down Joe Erling Jar in Copenhagen. Headed to Denmark. Headed to Denmark. All of the people they had arrested were put on trial in 2002. Only three people ended up being convicted in the attack. Joe Erling Jar received 16 years for his part. Ole Nikolai Kviesler received 15 years for his part. And then 17-year-old the driver, Veronica Andreasen, received three years in prison. Well, at least they got prison time. Did they spend any time in prison? I think Veronica spent a year and a half in prison, and then she got out. Again, she was a minor. And then the other two were both released in 2013, about 12 years after their conviction. They got some time, but it didn't help. They both went right back to the Nazi party and even within a month had attended together two different Nazi conferences in different countries. Like they were on parole still and they were allowed to attend these. It just amazes me that, you know, I know that a lot of countries have freedom of thought and here we have to allow these assholes to assemble. We have to allow them to protest on the streets. Mm-hmm. A lot of countries have similar laws that they can't stop them from just speaking what they think. Right. But in Germany, it's illegal to espouse that kind of ideology. Well, yeah, because they're not fucking around. They're like, no, we're not doing that again. Yeah. So... I just think it's crazy they were allowed to leave the country on parole after killing a man to go attend these. That is pretty shocking that they were allowed to leave the country at all. In 2001, I don't know if you knew this, Michael Jackson's album Invincible was completely dedicated to Benjamin. I did not know this. Well, I'm glad he did that. In 2003, Benjamin's mother, with the help of other anti-hate groups in the area, created the Benjamin Prize which is given out on the 27th of January every year, so on the anniversary of his death, but also the same day that the prisoners of Auschwitz were liberated. Oh my gosh, so those two events, I wonder if if they had picked that date to go out and say, that's the date they got out, but we're going to go and show them that they're not free, that they're not welcome, they're not... It's possible. It's totally possible. So did the friend get away unharmed? He was able to escape into the nearby youth center. They let him in. So they give out this award on the 27th of January every year to honor Benjamin and also the liberation of Auschwitz. It is given to a school who has done their part, different fundraisers and stuff, and supported anti-hate groups. So that's cool. They are trying to raise a generation who's not like these little asshole neo-Nazis. And then since then, a large memorial has been placed in Homlia, It's a bust of Benjamin, only about 10 meters away from where he was killed. Wow. It simply says, Glim Ike, which translates to don't forget. And I'm just going to show you the picture, because if I read the rest of this, I'm going to cry. 20 years later, 
this is how celebrated it remains. Wow. You can still walk past. And then I will send it to you to post on Instagram, but there's a ben- the picture of Benjamin. Oh, what a doll. You can tell that little cocky smirk he has where he's a little clown, but he's sweet. He would have done something in the world. Absolutely. What a, just, what a terrible loss. The fact that 20-something years later and he's still getting that much attention on his memorial site, he was loved. So Sweet boy, and I'm so sorry that happened to him. Okay, I'm ready for your weird your weird survivor story. That I wouldn't say it's weird exactly. It's just not exactly like most of our survivor stories. Most of them are they go through some really horrific event and then they make some life-changing decision and they say, I'm going to go out and change the world. Okay. Yeah. This one's not like that. This one's more about a mindset. A mindset and making a decision to be content with what you have. And we're just going to have to accept that the survivor knows what he's doing. All right. We're just going to roll with it. <laughs> we are just I'll take with it as it. it comes. Richard Morton and his wife Abigail married in June 1982. When they married, Abigail took in Richard's daughter and loved her like her own. And the couple had two more sons together, Richard Jr. and Jeremy. The family was very happy together and they were financially secure. Richard had built a successful northern Mississippi grocery store that supported the family. So they had no money problems and for all intents and purposes, they were content. They loved each other. By 2003, 39-year-old Abigail was getting restless because she was not working herself. She didn't like feeling like she wasn't independent. She had quit her job at a Mississippi casino because the hours, 4 a.m. to 2 p.m., left her feeling fatigued, and Richard thought it was just dangerous for her to be driving to work every day when she was mentally disoriented from getting up so early all the time. Yeah, that's a rough shift. Yeah, it is. She had been applying for jobs, but she was told she was overqualified. She wasn't getting any interviews. She really just wanted to return to cosmetology, which was her first love and she had been trained for, but her hands were giving her trouble, so she really couldn't do that anymore. Mm, That's rough. Hard to find a job with any kind of profession where your hands aren't going to... Yes, because that was really what she wanted to do, so any other job she would be settling for, Mm -hmm. but that was nothing else was ever going to really make her happy. So she was kind of at a midlife crisis point at this moment. On April 29th, 2003... Abigail bundled Richard into the car and was driving him to the Regional Medical Center in Memphis, Tennessee, where he had to undergo a medical procedure related to gunshot wounds he had sustained in an unsolved assault from December the 2nd, 2002. Wow. So five months earlier, he had been shot. He got checked in. He was sedated. He underwent the procedure, came into the recovery room, and during this time, Abigail had waited with him until he came to, and then he was brought back to his hospital room. Mm -hmm. Abigail stayed with him in his fifth floor room until late afternoon. Just before 7 p.m., she woke Richard to tell him she wasn't feeling very well. Her sinuses were bothering her. Her arm was swelling up. She had an ace bandage wrapped around it, and she just thought she would head home and get some rest and be back the next day. Okay. So she then said goodbye for the night and took off. Because his IV had been placed in his left hand, Richard rolled over onto his right side and he just lay there resting, kind of falling asleep, dozing off. At 6.45 p.m., a short time after Abigail had left the hospital to return home, a man walked into Richard's hospital room and Richard sort of rolled over a little bit so he could see who was in his room. When you just had surgery, there's just a constant stream of people in and out of your room. There's people in there to clean, there's people in there to bring you food, there's Mm -hmm. people in there to check your vitals and all that stuff. 
So he wasn't really paying that much attention. He just rolled over to see who was there. He just wanted to see who it was. So the man had on a gray suit, brown shoes, and a hat. So he clearly didn't work in the hospital. Hmm. Richard was still groggy from the surgery just prior, so he didn't really pay that much attention to the man's presence. He rolled back over to his right side again. But in the back of his mind, he recognized that he had met this man before. He halfway remembered that this man had visited Richard at his grocery store because Richard's younger son, Jeremy Morton, had been dating this man's stepdaughter. And the man had just come in to meet Richard and find out a little bit about his son. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he knew him, but he didn't know him. He had only met him the one time. But he could tell that this man that he had previously met only one other time was doing something behind him. So Richard rolled back slightly to see what he was doing, and he saw the man bending over him holding a syringe, and almost immediately Richard felt a burning, stinging sensation in the hand that had the IV in it. Oh, so he went directly into the IV? Yes. Ah. Richard shouted at the man, and because he didn't think it was normal for an IV to burn like that, he snatched the IV needle out of his hand. He's like, I don't know what you just put in there, but I don't want it in my body. The unknown man immediately fled the room, and Richard shouted again, this time saying he had been shot in his IV, which isn't exactly accurate, but you get the idea. I mean, kind of. It's not too far off. <laughs> yeah, he had a shot in his IV. Yeah. Immediately after this, the nurse came running into the room to find out why he was crying out. She heard what he said, but she didn't understand what he meant. Richard told nurse Vicki Patton that a man had injected something into his IV and then described what the man was wearing to the nurse. Vicki Patton passed this information to a second person who called security immediately. As nurse Patton was looking around on the floor for the man, she was told by somebody, a hospital visitor, that they had seen a man running towards the stairs. Since the event had taken place on the fifth floor, nurse Patton quickly took the elevator to the ground floor and waited watching for a man matching the description of the person who had injected something into Richard's IV. She pointed the man out to a security officer, and as a second security officer approached the man, he took off running. After being caught, the man was detained and his person was searched. The man was determined to be 55-year-old Robert Hunter, and two syringes were found in his coat pocket. While he was detained and questioned, the syringes were tested at the hospital pharmacy for controlled substances or illicit drugs, but none were detected. Both recovered syringes and the whole tainted IV apparatus Mm -hmm. were all placed in the morgue refrigerator to be further tested at a later time. Okay. Routine post-op testing of Richard's blood sugar level had been within normal ranges right after his procedure. After the incident, another sample was tested and it was still within normal at 76. But 42 minutes later, his blood sugar had dropped to abnormally low at 46. They gave him dextrose to increase his sugar level, but when tested again just over an hour later, it had fallen even further to 43. His levels continued to fluctuate between 213, way down to 45. But by 11.30 p.m., they had leveled out and stayed thereafter within the range of normal. His doctors concluded that these fluctuations were consistent with having received an injection of insulin. Mm -hmm. Since Richard Morton had no history of diabetes and had no irregular blood sugar history, there was no reason he should have received any injections of insulin. Had he not pulled out the IV as quickly as he had, he really might not have survived. Well, yeah, that's crazy that his numbers were fluctuating so much with so little that was 
able to get into him to begin with. Right. That's wild. Just a tiny amount of it affected him. That must have been a very highly dosed. Wait into until it. you hear. Okay. As Robert Hunter's questioning proceeded, it came out that he had been married for 33 years and had just been divorced from his wife. He was an educator from a long line of school teachers. He had a master's degree, had been trained earlier in his life as a nursing assistant, but at the time of questioning, he was the principal of Jonestown Elementary School in Jonestown, Mississippi. He had worked at various K-12 schools for decades. He had a pristine reputation, great parental and staff reviews. At this point, investigators could see no reason why this highly educated, well-respected elementary school principal would sneak into a hospital room and inject insulin into the IV of Richard Morton, with whom there was no clear connection. This just seemed like a bad joke. Both of these men were upstanding, productive, decent members of society. So what had happened here? Mm -hmm. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we explore that, let's jump backwards by almost exactly a year in time. Mm -hmm. On May 3rd, 2002, Principal Robert Hunter had attended an athletic banquet at the high school. A lot of the high school athletes had come up through his school, and he knew many of the high school staff and faculty as well. So at the banquet, he was seated at a table where he knew some of the people, but not all of them. At one point, he was ready to head home and stood up as if to leave when he was passed a note from a woman he didn't know sitting across the table. The note was asking him not to leave just yet. Assuming she knew something upcoming in the banquet that he shouldn't miss, he sat back down and stayed a while longer. But when nothing notable happened, he eventually did get up and leave without any other interaction with the woman who had passed him the note. Less than a week later, Principal Hunter attended a different program at his own school, Jonestown Elementary. The same woman from the athletic banquet attended this program, and they passed in the hall, and he gave her a nod and kept going about his way. A short time later, he said she made a point to speak to him. He paid more attention to her this time, and as they chatted, he casually asked her in conversation if she was married. He had moved into flirt mode by this point, and when she told him that she was married, he joked that he could send her husband to the Bahamas or, quote, on a permanent vacation, unquote. Despite her marital status, and despite the fact that Hunter was in fact himself engaged and living with a new fiancé, Audrey Walker, The two were attracted to one another and exchanged phone numbers. The two of them started secretly spending time together. They would drive around in his car talking. They would sometimes visit out-of-the-way places. Sometimes they went to casinos. And there was an occasion where they made a trip to the Gold Strike Casino that Audrey Walker actually saw them there and confronted him. But somehow, Robert Hunter managed to talk his way out of it and Mm -hmm. Mystery Woman and Mr. Hunter continued seeing one another. It wasn't long before it had become a sexual relationship. As they got more deeply involved with one another, she visited him at the school where he introduced her to his secretary as Mrs. Adams and told the secretary later that they were seeing one another. She came by the school to see him several more times before the end of the school year. Mrs. Adams called often enough that the principal secretary, Rosemarie B., could actually recognize her voice. Mm -hmm. It was only a month after they started seeing one another that Mrs. Adams reminded Robert Hunter about his comment during their first real conversation that he could either send her husband to Bermuda or on a permanent vacation, and then added that she would like to send him away permanently. And she added that she would like to send him away permanently. At first, Robert assumed Mrs. Adams was joking, as he had been joking when he first said it. But over the next few months, she continued to mention it. 
and bring it up. And it became more and more insistent that she needed this to happen. Mm-hmm. As Robert Hunter listened to her repeat it, he started to grasp she was making a serious attempt to secure his assistance in this matter of permanently removing her husband. The more he thought about it, the more he started to wonder if he might actually be able to do this and also to think about what he would need in return if he did. He told Mrs. Adams that contract killings are expensive and he told her that she had to produce evidence that she would be able to pay for his services if he went through with it. Now that this was turning into more of a business transaction, the two of them, not surprisingly, had started to lose interest in their sexual relationship. So at this point, their only contacts were related to her bugging him about killing her husband. Around the end of September, Mrs. Adams set up a meeting with Robert Hunter in Marks, Mississippi. When she showed up, she was with an unknown man who was driving a car with an Illinois license plate. He had no idea who this guy was. The meeting was intended so that Robert Hunter could review the life insurance documents guaranteeing payment to Mrs. Adams in the event of her husband's death. Although he didn't know who this guy was, Robert went ahead and looked over the insurance documents to get a feel for the payout value of them. The value of the document he was looking at was $100,000 in the event of her husband's death with her as the beneficiary. Robert Hunter told her that for him to kill her husband, he would require between $30,000 and $38,000, and he based this figure on the contingency fee schedule that was used by attorneys, which I thought was ironic. Bizarre. Okay. In other words, a reasonable contingency fee for attorneys is considered to be between 30 and 40% of the earnings in a lawsuit. Well, I wonder if he was doing it that way so that if he needed to hire an attorney, he would have enough money to do so. Oh, that's an idea. Maybe just he's he's like, I just want to make sure I can save my ass if I get caught, you know? Well, I would think that since he doesn't have a value on what he could earn, I think... Valid. So, but I don't know. That's an interesting thought. Mm. So if she was going to get 100000 then he wanted between 30 and 38% of that. Okay. The woman began promoting various ways that Hunter could ostensibly kill her husband. She came up with violent options, some of them very involved and intricate. One of them was that she suggested luring her husband to Arkansas to supposedly visit a friend of his and then shooting him while he was away on this trip. She also suggested luring him into a high crime area and shooting him there and leaving him. Oh wait, so this random attack... Hunter, who was also a certified nursing assistant and trying to avoid this shooting scenario, Mm -hmm. suggested that insulin would be a cleaner and easier way to do it. But still, Mrs. Adams clung to the ideas of gunfire. By now, no doubt, you have already figured out that Mrs. Adams was actually Richard Morton's wife, Abigail Morton. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, on December 2nd, 2002, Richard Morton was confronted in his yard by an unknown assailant who shot him three times in the abdomen, the shoulder, and the buttocks. He underwent multiple surgeries, and he had to be fitted with a colostomy bag for several months while his colon was repaired and healed. No one was ever arrested for this shooting. But it's mighty coincidental that this attempted murder took place in the months right after Abigail Morton and Robert Hunter came to their agreement to murder Richard Morton. And she suggested all of these... Yes. to shoot him somehow. Yes, and my next sentence is, and mighty coincidental that she'd been hoping to have him shot, and then he was shot. So was it like a drive-by situation where a car just came by, shot him three times, and then left? I could not find any article that actually talked about this shooting. Like the confrontation of it all? Yeah, literally. There was nothing in the newspaper about his shooting. So that just... Well, maybe he was so delirious from blood loss and shock that he probably 
didn't remember the exact scenario, maybe. I'm sure that he remembered more about it than that, but just no one was interested in reporting the incident. Gotcha. I did find legal documents that talked about an appeal later on Mm -hmm. where it describes some of these things, but it never says much about that because there was never any charges brought related to the shooting. That makes sense. So if there's no documents out there, then how is anybody going to know the truth of what happened versus... So there was never any evidence to implicate either Richard Hunter or Abigail Morton in the shooting. They were never charged in this attempt, but the coincidences of the method and the timing are damning, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. They're not lost upon us. (laughs) They are not. And it might be a red herring, but shortly after Richard Morton was shot, there was also an event where the headlights and taillights of the car of Richard Morton Jr. were smashed out. But again, there was no evidence of the perpetrator, and there was no clarity as to whether it was connected to the shooting. Mm-hmm. So it might just have nothing to do with it. But after this totally unrelated attempt on Richard's life failed, he obviously had ongoing health problems. Mm-hmm. And now, not only is Richard still alive, but the person who wanted him dead is the person who's also taking care of him during his convalescence. So when Richard was scheduled to have a medical procedure related to the shooting that was scheduled for April 29th, 2003, Abigail Morton called Robert Hunter and said, Hey, Good news, Richard's having surgery on April 29th in Memphis, so this would be the perfect time for you to inject him with insulin and kill him. Okay. That's a paraphrase. I just didn't have a quote for that. It also just so happened that Hunter was still engaged to Audrey Walker, and Audrey was coincidentally having surgery the exact same day in DeSoto County, Mississippi. The two locations were about half an hour apart, so Robert Hunter and Abigail Morton got together April 24th, five days ahead of the surgery day, to cement what their plans would be. Hunter told Abigail Morton that she had to give him the names and addresses of five family members as collateral so that he could be sure she really wanted this done and that she would pay him after her husband had been killed. The same day, April 24th, Hunter also made a call to a friend and asked for some insulin, which he picked up from the friend the following day on the 25th. These two had been friends for years, so the friend... Warren Nance trusted that Hunter was also diabetic and was just running low on insulin. But although Warren gave him the insulin, he did not provide any syringes or needles, so Robert had to have procured those by some other means. Some pharmacists I worked with, they'll give it out to anybody as long as you can prove that you have a prescription for something that requires a needle otherwise. Oh, so... It depends. If you say, here's my insulin bottle, and you have that with you, a lot of pharmacists would just give you a a needle or two over the counter. Yeah, but you wouldn't be carrying that around unless it was empty, because it has to be refrigerated, right? No, it just has to be refrigerated. I think you can leave it out for seven days. Oh, okay. So, like, you can use it throughout that whole week out of the fridge. That's just to preserve it before you have time to use it. I see. I did not know. Sorry, my pharmacy nerdy knows this coming up. But, <laughs> but yes, that's what I would assume is he probably brought that to a pharmacy, just a CVS or Walmart, and said, I am out of syringes, I'm out of town, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. So on the 29th of April, Robert Hunter took Audrey Walker to her surgery in DeSoto County, Mississippi, waited until she was out of surgery and in recovery and awake, and then he left that hospital. Then he drove to Memphis, calling Abigail Morton to let her know that he was headed to the regional medical center, and when he arrived, he met her outside of the medical center. The two of them went up the elevator together to the fifth floor. Abigail went alone to her husband's room and told him that she was heading home for the day. Remember, she had the sinus issues and her arm was hurting, Mm -hmm. and she would go home and she would see him the next day. Then she and Hunter went outside together, and Abigail Morton headed off alone while Robert Hunter filled two syringes with the borrowed insulin. 
He returned alone to the fifth floor and went into Richard's hospital room, where Richard turned and looked up at him, vaguely recognizing him, but was too groggy to figure out why he would be there. Robert Hunter inserted one of the syringes into Richard's IV and inserted what one article said was 80 cc's, but upon further research, it was probably 80 units. Yeah, that makes way more sense. And that was when Richard screamed, Robert ran out of the room and down the stairs, and got caught by Nurse Patton outside. Okay. Oddly, Robert Hunter denied that he had ever met Richard Morton at the grocery store, although their children had dated. He said he had two syringes of insulin because he wasn't sure how much it would take to kill a person, and he had emptied the second syringe in the stairs when he was running down from the fifth floor because that syringe had even more than the one that he used in Richard's IV. So he just squirted it out of there so that it wasn't still in it when he got to the bottom of the stairs. What a bad nursing assistant he must be. (laughs) He may have been trained and never actually worked as a nursing assistant. True. After the questioning of Robert Hunter, during which he pretty much spilled all the tea and implicated Abigail Morton right away, she was picked up and escorted to the police station several hours later. During her questioning, she first admitted that she had played some indirect part in the attempt on her husband's life. She said she had driven away from the hospital and that she didn't know anything had really happened until a nurse called her at 7 p.m. to tell her that someone had tried to put something into her husband's IV. Mm -hmm. Abigail Morton also claimed that she had only had sex once with Robert Hunter, and she said that after Richard had been shot, someone had called her house and said to her that Richard, quote, got exactly what he deserved for fucking with my wife, end quote. But there's no way to know if that actually happened, and some people believe that that was just a way for her to deflect suspicion away from her related to that December 2nd shooting. Okay. And although she had admitted her part in the whole insulin scheme, when asked if she wanted her husband to be killed, she replied, in all actuality, no. Even though she had met Hunter there, promised him payment, told him her husband's room number, and in fact showed him where the room was, She still now is saying, well, I didn't want him dead. It was just a joke. During Abigail Morton's trial, witnesses testified that Abigail had been complaining about her marriage with Richard as early as 1999 and that she had made pretty serious plans to leave him. But Richard knew about this because he himself noted that they had gone through a really sour couple of years, just like many marriages do. But Richard said that they had been fine after they came through that little rough patch. Abigail denied that she had ever passed Robert a note at the athletic banquet that Hunter claimed was their first meeting. She said he approached her at the elementary school a few days later, and not the other way around. For every statement Robert made that implicated her, Abigail's responses were that the affair with Robert Hunter only took place because he had threatened and intimidated her into spending time with him and having sex with him. She said that those five names that he had with her five relatives names and addresses, she Mm -hmm. said that he used that as blackmail just to prove that she had given it to him and now he could call them and say, look, here's what she's been doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she made it sound as if she never wanted any of this. She only had sex with him one time. She never would have been involved with him except that he was threatening, intimidating, and coercing her. In fact, she said that Hunter had told her he was part of an underground criminal organization who maimed or killed people who didn't do what they were told. And that sounds a little over the top, but I guess if you're... Yeah, a primary school principal. principal. Yeah. When I think of all my principals, that makes me laugh in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's part of a mob. Like, ugh. 
Yeah. She claimed that Hunter had brought up the idea of getting Richard, not that she had brought it up, but that Hunter had brought it up, and that Hunter had held threats of backlash from this mysterious criminal organization over her head and over the lives of her family members that he had their names and addresses if she didn't do exactly what he said. She claimed that Hunter had fallen in love with her, but Hunter denied that he was ever in love with her. Abigail testified that although she did see Hunter at the hospital the day of the surgery, she didn't encourage him to do anything to her husband and that when she left, she thought her husband would be safe because his room was across from the nurse's station. But according to the nurse, I think, said, yes, it was across from the nurse's station, but his bed wasn't directly visible through the door. And if you show up to your husband's hospital where he is down, basically, because he just got out of surgery, and you run into your ex-lover, you're not going to be like, why the fuck are you here? Like, I'm sorry, Abigail. I don't believe a goddamn word you're saying, miss. (laughs) So, Richard Morton, who had now been shot, undergone months of pain and suffering related to that, and then nearly killed by insulin in the hospital, chose to believe the testimony of his wife during her trial. Mm, He doesn't know why a man he had previously met only one time would try to kill him, but he believed that his wife was intimidated into saying that she was part of it and that she had nothing to do with the actual murder scheme. He said he loved and supported his wife, but he did not attempt to raise money to bail her out, even after the bond amount was lowered from $1 million, which was the original bond, Mm -hmm. down to $500,000 in November of 2003. He said it was leaving it all in the hands of his God, who would manage everything the way it was supposed to go. So he said he believed her, but he didn't actually try to get her out of jail. Well, he believed her, but not $500,000 worth. Yeah, you exactly. Know? <laughs> and I exactly. the same way. He said although he didn't know what her chances were for her to actually get out, he was going to continue to visit her every Sunday, and so he did. Mm-hmm. Abigail was convicted of premeditated first-degree attempted murder and conspiracy to commit premeditated first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 20 years on each count to be served concurrently. Abigail was paroled before 2014. And I tried so hard to find an update to find out whether they got back together after she came out. Hmm. But she wouldn't have had anywhere else to go. And he still believed her. So I imagine in my head that he probably took her back. Well, at that point, too, her kids are probably grown. So she might have just gone to live with them or something like that, too. Maybe so. Maybe Possible. so. Possible. I don't know. So I think that he probably took her back because his belief in her never wavered. Mm-hmm. And going through what to him was a joint stressor, it might have brought them closer if he continued to visit her over the years. Mm-hmm. She'd be like, I can't wait to get out and come home to this man that I thought was so boring before. You know, now you're my savior. Yeah. Robert Hunter pled guilty and was sentenced to 13 years, but he was paroled less than three years after that, when he had served a little more than a total of four years. He tried to renew his teaching license when he was released in 2007, but he was denied when he applied in 2010. And he was told he could reapply again when his probation period had ended. Okay, that's pretty lenient. Upon his release from prison, he had worked a newspaper route, then as a hospital chaplain, then went to seminary school and began doing motivational speaking. He did receive his renewed teaching license in 2015 and began teaching English at Ruleville Central High School at the age of 65. Well, I don't feel too bad about that because he does seem like he kind of got wrapped up in this over his head and that the type of person who's like, well, I won't do that again. That was a bad idea. Yeah, and I think that he led such a respectable life and Mm -hmm. then he met her 
and got wrapped up in this and she started hanging this money in front of him and he's like it would be easy for me to do Mm -hmm. she's gonna find some way to kill him either way i might as well be the one to do it and take the money and he was at least when she was like just shoot him just wait till he's on a trip and shoot him he was like okay well can we at least like go for maybe try a merciful way like that's not gonna be he was teaching again and he expressed regret he expressed remorse he isn't shy about talking about it he tells people that he wasn't worthy mm-hmm. of getting his teaching license back, but that he was thankful that they were merciful towards him. So I'm not trying to say he didn't do anything wrong. He did. Right. He did something wrong, but he knows he did something wrong. And I don't think he's a risk that he's going to do something like that again. Yeah, I'm a little bit more worried about Abigail, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, they're good now, maybe, but give it another 10 years. <laughs> you know, she's well, like... she's 59 now, so she's going to have to age pretty well to be planning murders at 69. True. And I'd like to say that that's the end of this story, but I have to add in this final footnote. Oh no. So Robert Hunter, even though we've kind of agreed that he's redeemed himself, Uh he had three children with his first wife. In a bizarre twist, Robert Hunter's daughter, Yolinda Denise Hunter, she had been with her high school sweetheart, a man named Alfonso Doss. And that man, Alfonso Doss, had gone on to rise up the ranks in the United States Navy. So they had been married, and Navy Commander Doss's team was the one that worked to get a confession out of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was considered to be the main planner of the 9-11 attacks. So Commander Doss was very respected and highly accomplished in his career in the Navy. Mm-hmm. By 2014, 11 years after the insulin attempt on Richard Morton's life by Robert Hunter, his daughter, Yolinda, and Alfonso Doss had a 16-year-old daughter, Alexis, and Yolinda had separated from her husband, Alfonso. That year, 2014, Yolinda stood watch outside of a motel room that her estranged husband, Alfonso, was staying in, and using a key that she had given them, two men, Anthony Washington and Ronnie Wilson, entered Commander Doss's motel room and manually strangled him to death while she waited for them outside. In 2017, Yolinda was convicted of manslaughter for her part in the murder of her husband, Commander Doss. The murder was part of a scheme to get his life insurance before the divorce was final and she wouldn't be entitled to it. Mm -hmm. So father and daughter were both convicted of very similar crimes. I think Commander Doss deserves his own episode. It's just heartbreaking. To me, her crime is is way worse than what her dad did, though. Because he was going to do it like i said in a more merciful way at least where this man was already basically out he was basically unconscious at that point and then she just sat outside listening you know there were sounds coming out of there of him struggling and fighting because that's such a horrible thing it's a horrible thing and that guy was a strong guy he was high up in the ranks in the military and you know he had muscles so the force it must have taken to do that to a man like that yeah. It's horrific. It's horrific. And she just sat outside and let it happen. Heart. So that she could get money. I mean, when they say money is the root of all evil, they ain't kidding about that. Yeah. Most people, and I'm not saying all people, mm-hmm. I don't think I would ever kill someone for money because I'm just not that money driven. Yeah. And I can't understand when somebody kills somebody for money. But a lot of people, if you give them enough money, they will kill somebody for it. So that just makes me sick. But this episode isn't about them. Yeah. This episode is about what happened to Richard Morton, mm-hmm. who despite blatant attempts, two blatant attempts on his life, never lost faith in Abigail. 
Many of Richard's friends and family believe that the shooting in December 2002 was directly related to the insulin attack in April 2003. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them blame Abigail for both of those attacks. But not Richard. Not Abigail's two sons. Not her sister Cassandra. The four of them defended her against all comers. And even though it's possible that was wishful thinking on their part, and in my mind it probably is, Mm -hmm. there's something to be said for that depth of devotion. But what it comes down to is what Richard felt in his heart, and if he had peace in his heart, who am I to tell him he was wrong? So he survived twice, he still loved and believed in his wife, and he was happy with that, so more power to him. And you know what? It's 2023 now. Doesn't seem like he's been murdered. Alright, maybe he's on to something. Maybe she did learn a lesson. Maybe so. And we'll try to look on the bright side on that. I hope so. So, like I said at the beginning, we just have to accept that Richard knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Because he's a grown man and he can make his own decisions, and that's what he did. And may we all find a partner like Richard. And, you know, <laughs> don't try to kill them. Just right. let's have some standards for ourselves. Correct. Find a man like Richard. Also, love Richard back. Don't do this to yes. Richard. Yeah, if someone loves you like Richard loved Abigail, then love Richard back because Richard's a gem. You know, therapy... Couples therapy, it works. Yes. So. For sure. And money's not worth it. Nope. Ever. Money's never worth it. No matter how much money there is, it's not worth it. Well, it's one thing if it's worth it for you, but you're also doing this horrible thing that your kids are going to be traumatized for. True. Forever. If you do this for money, not only do you not care about Richard, you don't care about your children either. That's true, because if he was that loving and devoted towards the woman who probably tried to kill him... Uh. Imagine what a good dad he was. Yeah. So, I'm just saying, I'm not on Abigail's side, but I'm on Richard's side, so if... If he's happy and she doesn't hurt him anymore, Mm -hmm. I'd say more power to them and may they live the rest of their lives in peace and happiness together. Mm -hmm. And I can't let a couple bad Norwegians taint Norway. Oh, yeah. Norway's really standing up against all these groups. They, um... Because God knows I don't want to be judged by the bad Americans. Well, they said this murder happening and all the people that came to town to protest that day it was the largest national scurrying and running and moving of these racist anti-semitic people out of their country than they had seen since world war ii when all the nazis were basically being kicked out well it's good that they left the country but they still went somewhere And they still exist. I know, but that in itself was like, oh, we're not safe here. We're going to get the fuck out of here. Because they're like, we're not doing this anymore. And so I think that that can be said. A lot of people need to be angry about it, not just when it happens in your country. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to care when bad things happen to people who don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is a very long episode again. Guys, this was um, a little bit long one, I think, but thank you for being here with us today. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at True Crime BNB. Yep. If you want to email us, you can do so at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you, and we appreciate you being here, and we'll see you next week for episode 70. Woohoo! Woohoo! Bye, guys. Bye. Puss, you want to say anything, Tony? Nope. I'm royalty in Norway. Leave me alone. It was still groggery from the... Groggery? It was real groggery. <laughs> Richard groggery. 
and I have IV in capital letters, and I keep wanting to say Richard's five, but it's not five. It would be four. Well, and when you said she was looking for the man around on the floor, I thought that he was hiding under the bed or something, and I was like, imagine he's hiding under the bed with his IV. Like, hope they don't find me down here. Can I make a guess? You can, but you have to edit it out if you're right. I won't. This will just be between me and you. Okay. I think this newly divorced guy wants in on Richard's wife, and that's just my guess because, I don't know, it's always love or money. <laughs> okay, continue. <laughs> love or money is a good observation, mm -hmm. but you just forget you said any of that. At first, Robert assumed Mrs. Adams was talking. What? <laughs> he assumed... <laughs> yeah, I assumed she was talking to <laughs> Imagine halfway through your story, I just interrupted you. I assume you're talking. Yeah, that or he just hears it in his head. He's actually know? been deaf this whole time. <laughs> he didn't know they were in a, in a relationship. Oh, she's been talking for 20 minutes. He looks over. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you talking? Then added that she would like to set. and taillights of the Morton's son, Richard Jr., were smashed out. Well, of his car, not of himself. The headlights and taillights of Richard Morton Jr.'s son. What? fuck, I can't even reword it and make any sense. <laughs> this baby's car was vandalized. <laughs> I'm going to try this one more time, and if I can't get it, I'm just going to leave it out. Because I don't want to like found like a fucking idiot. <laughs> This is the one thing, the one unit of measurement I am very comfortable with and I'm thinking about a syringe this large that he's hiding under his coat. Two of them. And people are like, is that a syringe of insulin? Are you happy to see me? Okay. Abigail testified that although she did see Hunter at the hospital the day of the surgery, she didn't do anything to encourage him to do anything to, wait a minute, that was too many do anything. And I think to, that Commander Doss deserves his own episode. I can't even say words anymore. No, I agree. My well, bad. then we stopped to do research on insulins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and cat tonsils. And cat tonsils, yes. Epiglottal, pharyngeal, and labial? Did you say labial? <laughs> Lingual. <laughs> tonsils on my lips. <laughs> if you have labial tonsils, I think that's just the penis or balls. All right, all right. This is episode 69. This is inappropriate. Oh, my God. But it fits perfect. Oh, my okay. God. 